You're listening to Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming on 3CR Community Radio. Today's show features a selection of interviews across 2022 talking about issues of colonization in so-called Australia. Stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and streaming at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app. Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate your community. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it is really exciting to be able to talk to you about this work. And I'm wondering if you could start off by telling us a bit about the law and justice work that you do with the Foreign Prisoners Support Service and about how you and your collaborator, Darnball and South Sea Islander woman, Amy McGuire, came to start working together on Curtain the Podcast as well. Yeah, for sure. So I've been working um, with the Farm Prisoner Support Service for uh, well over a decade, nearly two now. And we assist um, people who are imprisoned in a country other than their own, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander prisoners, people who are kidnapped and missing. And I also am the uh, death penalty coordinator. So any cases, um, whether they're um, in the United States or anywhere around the world, I run those death penalty uh, cases, helping to defend those on death row. And that they might be cases in the United States of someone who's been wrongly accused of murder, right through to people caught up in the war on terror and any sorts of other cases. And it, it was discussing one of those cases, Amy was actually interviewing me about an African-American guy I represent, Rodney Reed, Mm. who's on death row in Texas. And it was during that interview that um, Amy realised there was some similarities between a case she knew about in Australia and Rodney's case. And after the interview, she just asked me, would I represent this Aboriginal man in Rockhampton prison, Kevin Henry? And I said yes, and that really is how we we kicked off um, working together. Yeah, and this collaborative work um, has recently also taken the form of working on cases of disappeared, and that's in quotation marks, Indigenous women in so-called Australia. And I really appreciated Amy's use of this term in her December 14th Substack piece, and I was wondering if maybe you could speak to some of this invisibilised crisis and how your work has taken a turn in that direction. The work on this issue actually started at the very beginning of Kurt and the podcast. I've worked on cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women uh, in the past, as well as um, missing women overseas. And when we first started working on Curtin, we were looking at similar cases that had happened in the town of Rockhampton in Queensland. And just to give people a little bit of background, Kevin Henry was wrongly accused of murdering a woman in Rockhampton in the early 90s. And there was also an unsolved case that had occurred in a very similar manner in the 70s where an Aboriginal woman had been murdered as well. So it's always been very much front and centre for us both. But recently there's been two inquests 
Aboriginal women in Queensland who were murdered uh, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And since um, we've been able to get Kevin out, it's enabled us to focus more of our attention on this issue. Yeah, and... It, it, oh, go on. And, it, it, look, it's, it's really a massive issue. As I say, there was a, a case that occurred in Rockhampton in the 70s, then again in the 90s, and that's just one small town in, in Queensland. And there's probably at least five other cases like it that we know in that town. In the town I live in, in New South Wales, it's the same. And so people can begin to imagine when you have small towns around the country where you have multiple cases of Aboriginal women who have been murdered or forcibly disappeared, then the numbers really start to add up to an alarming rate. And yet very little work has been done and no-one's really talking about it. Yeah, this really speaks to the kind of dual focus of of Curtin, the podcast as well, where you were looking not just at, you know, justice for Kevin Henry, but also justice for the woman whose life had been taken and really the the serious misconduct and lack of regard for, for her life, which is horrible and tragic and, as you've mentioned, fairly widespread. And you've had consent from families that you've been working with to discuss some of these issues. And I'm hoping you could speak to some of their tireless work and how that labour is repeated across so many Indigenous communities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the opportunity to work with Kevin Henry and work with the Aboriginal community in and around Rockhampton and Wurrabinda was a really good experience for me because it took me outside of my local area and opened me up to a place nearly 2,000 kilometres away where, just like where I'm from, there are families by the dozens who are dealing with these issues where too often they have been completely ignored by the police and they've gone years without anybody assisting them. They've been ignored by the media Um, often in a number of cases the police have been involved in the disappearance of the woman or the child. And so one of the things that's really common is the the trauma that the families live with, but also the fact that they've had no assistance at all. And that really, it's hard to find a term to, to describe it accurately, but that really grates at them and eats away at these families and communities so much. And so it's often a big relief when we are able to at least offer to help. And I think the thing the families do incredibly well is to keep the memory of their loved one alive. They keep speaking about that person amongst themselves, amongst their community. In one particular case I'm working on at the moment, the families have acted as if they're investigators and lawyers and police all for themselves, um, getting affidavits and stat decks from potential witnesses, following up leads, um, trying to get other people to come forward and harassing the police just to simply try and do their job. So it it becomes all-consuming because unlike the rest of society who has this swarm of help come along, as we saw with little Cleo Smith in Western Australia, which is what we want to see. We want to see um, search and rescue. We want to see the right services.
services provided to a family when someone disappears or is potentially murdered. And unfortunately, these families are forced to do all of that work themselves with the burden of it being their own loved one. And it, it is really a highly traumatic experience and one that marks generations. And so a big part of what we try and do is simply to lift some of that weight from their shoulders and just start to do the work that they were already doing. And, of course, they've been put in this position because they're not receiving uh, assistance from the system that is purportedly there to support people through these circumstances and to, you know, to ask those hard questions and to track down um, any leads in order to find justice. And, you know, this is very clearly linked to those broader structural issues around policing in this country in terms of a real lack of regard for Indigenous lives and for pursuing justice for Indigenous people who have lost their lives. And so this also kind of links into those serious concerns around police investigating police and uh, issues around police record keeping, issues around uh, police following things up. And I'm wondering if you could unpack some of that in a bit more detail. Yeah, I mean, it's an issue I think people are not aware and aware of enough in that not only do police investigate police, but they very much investigate their own friends. So this was one of the things that connected for Amy, um, the case of Rodney Reed in Texas and Kevin Henry in Rockhampton, Queensland. In Texas, Rodney was... Um, convicted of a crime that was committed, we say committed by a police officer, and then covered up by his friends, who were also police officers. In Rockhampton, the same thing happened to Kevin Henry, and uh, his confession was forced and taken with a gun at his head, and the overarching officer who should have been ensuring this sort of thing really does not happen. This is criminal behaviour, to say the least was someone who was known to do the same thing, pull guns on Aboriginal people. And then when it goes to other issues, so to give an example of one of the cases I'm working on at the moment, where an Aboriginal woman was missing and there was the potential for there to be CCTV that may have shown what had occurred to her, the police didn't gather that CCTV, nor did they ascertain triangulation of her phone records because it would have cost $500. So you have this double issue of the police being perpetrators of this violence as well as the people supposedly investigating this violence, and then a total lack of any humanity where they wouldn't even spend $500 to find a young Aboriginal woman, and that's just one example. So you're dealing with a, a system where they will go to less effort to find an Aboriginal person or assist an Aboriginal family than they will to find their own dog. And that is really the state of play. And until the general public accept that as the reality as it is, then we're really not going to be able to convince anyone or there to be independent investigating of the police themselves, as well as independent investigation of any case that involved 
either police directly involved in the crime itself or a police cover-up or interference. Mm, You make a really important point there about this level of public belief and public will to engage with just how horrific this disparity is in the valuing of Indigenous people's lives. And um, I was hoping that you could speak to some of the failures of the media around sounding the alarm about disappeared Indigenous women and what their role should be in this space. This is an an issue that I think I would direct people to really read my colleague Amy McGuire on. If you go to her Substack page, she's written a number of times on this issue and the failure of the media... I think what the media does very often is that the police will put out a press release and the media will simply copy and paste it and and that's that. Given all we know about black deaths in custody, given what we know about the Bowerville murders and the failure of the police, given what we know about the recent killings of Aboriginal women by police, and we're talking about unarmed Aboriginal women who hadn't committed a crime, and last time I checked, we didn't have the death penalty in this country. I think people would start to wonder why the media is not going after the police a little bit more. So I think the main thing the media can do is have some courage, is to investigate the police and look at their practices and their behaviours in the same way they sometimes do in regards to politicians. I would treat the police in the same way that they did the gangland murders in in Victoria, Mm. in that really break down what the Victoria police and police right around this country do in a forensic manner and don't simply take them at their word. And I think that's where it really begins is do not assume that those in these positions of power and who wear uniform are telling the truth. Their press releases are often filled with basic inaccuracies. You don't simply have to believe what I say or what someone else in the Aboriginal community says. Simply just start to have a look at it. Mm. And I think if the media begin to do that, then we can begin to make some progress. Yeah, absolutely. I think that critical media literacy for people is so important as well, which is why I would also encourage people to check out Amy McGuire's Substack, uh, because there's a lot on, you know, reading between the lines of the way that these things are reported and how cases are effectively prosecuted in the media to to paint uh, Aboriginal victims of crime in a particular way. Just to wrap up, where can people support the work that you and Amy do and listen to Kurt in the podcast? Yeah, we would love people to listen to the podcast. You can find Kurt and the Podcast at curtinthepodcast.com or Spotify, on iTunes, really anywhere you get a podcast. Uh, People can support our work if they would like on Patreon, which they can find on our website or our social media. But the main thing I would say is just to really encourage people to engage with these issues that happen locally and around them, wherever you live in Australia, there are going to be Aboriginal families grieving loved ones who have been taken by the system at the moment. And so look around you where you are and support those families, support the communities and and do what you can to amplify their voices. But look, honestly, sometimes the best thing you can do is simply to donate money. Um, We live in a system 
where money talks and it's something as a community we don't have. So if people can support in that way, it makes a huge difference. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Martin. And we'll chuck some links in our show notes as well to places like the Dajwa Foundation too. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming on 3CR Community Radio, featuring interviews on colonization in so-called Australia. Stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and streaming at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app. disaster hits a group of islands scattered around the ocean like Tonga, it is evident how the responses and actions can be difficult for these multitude of uh, beings have no idea what to do, plus no equipment or tools to work with. And the impact will show on everything, physically, mentally, financially, and people due to being uninformed and unequipped. So maybe this is, um, this is a question for the Tongan government. How can you manage situations like this better in the future? Subscribe to 3CR, informed, articulate and alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up. And we're still talking about revolution. 
You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are joined now by Biami Williamson, who is a researcher and a PhD, a research associate and PhD candidate at the Australian National University, who's speaking with us about the disproportionate impact of climate change on Indigenous peoples and the need for Indigenous-centred disaster management and climate change mitigation in uh, strategies in Australia. Biami, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Pleasure. So um, before we jump into the interview proper, would you like to introduce yourself in a little more detail? Sure. So, um, yeah, Biomi Williamson. So as you said, I'm at the Australian National University, a research associate, PhD candidate um, from uh, Uwalio Man. So I'm from, my people are from northwestern New South Wales. And so I live out here in the small um, little Aboriginal community called Gadooga. Um, up near the Queensland border. Uh, we're up in the middle of the Murray-Darling Basin, but my mother also comes from um, northwest Queensland, from Concurry, and her family go up into the Gulf of Carpentaria. So it's just nice to have that background. Yeah, absolutely, and gives a good grounding for the discussion that we're going to have today. Um, so in an article for The Conversation published earlier this month, you discussed the disproportionate impact of climate change on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities with respect to the recent catastrophic flooding across Queensland and New South Wales. And I was wondering if you could speak to this disproportionate impact and some of the socio socioeconomic as well as cultural effects that such climate change disasters have on Indigenous peoples. Sure. So the disproportionate impacts that we talk about when we talk about um, yeah, how uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are impacted by disaster. So generally, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people live in areas that are more prone to disasters, um, areas that are like a central uh, in interior Australia, areas that are much more prone to things like drought and, um, um, and dust storms, a lot more populations throughout northern Australia, which are obviously much more um, prone to cyclones, and um, and along the coastal areas, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people live generally in areas that are more prone to fires and floods. So we've seen that absolutely during the 2019-20 bushfires that impacted large amounts of country and also huge populations of Aboriginal people. And we're seeing it again in the floods. And in particular, that area of like the northern rivers of New South Wales is a huge um, Aboriginal population in there. Um, it's one of the highest density Aboriginal populations in all of New South Wales throughout that whole region. There's a lot of discrete Aboriginal communities. And these are the areas that are um, that are obviously being really, really you know, catastrophically impacted by the, by the flood. So um, disproportionate in terms of the sheer number of people as well as the proportion of the population, like around Lismore, Kempsey, Ballina, um, the Aboriginal population is, you know, in some places, exceeds 12% of the general population. Um, and you compare that with the national average of sort of just, just a bit over 3%. You're talking about people who are sort of three to four more times likely to be impacted. So there's the number of people impacted, but there's also the profile of the population being really, really young, which means that um, more of the children impacted by disasters in these areas, more of them are going to the Aboriginal because we've got a very youthful population profile. Um, and so the number of people, the age and demographic of the population, and finally, as you said, the um, cultural and spiritual impacts of people who are inherently attached to country um, when catastrophe befalls that country well, then they experience a unique grief that, you know, Western modalities of like mental health um, and counselling and that kind of thing, those supports are just 
Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I guess on those cultural impacts as well, I was speaking with Tishiko King, um, who's a proud Torres Strait Islander woman um, and organizer with Seed Mob as well about, you know, the fact that losing land with rising sea levels because of climate change in the Torres Straits, for example, is disrupting connection to land into country. And so that is, you know... um, it's really important to keep in mind not just those impacts that um, that people face in terms of socioeconomic uh, challenges, but also the spiritual and cultural ones as well. Um, so in 2020, you presented a powerful testimony at the Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements in the wake of the 2019-2020 bushfire season. And this was based on a submission that you co-authored with Dr. Jessica Weir and Dr. Francis Markham at the Australian National University, which had a focus on the importance of cultural land management. And the report from that inquiry was tabled in October of 2020. So we've had a bit of time since then, and I'm um, hoping you could share some of your thoughts on the recommendations that it can contained on addressing and responding to natural disasters and also progress on implementation till date um, with particular emphasis on Indigenous peoples and inclusion of Indigenous knowledges? Yes, yeah, so the Royal Commission was an interesting one. Um, uh, the Royal Commission was really um, a great opportunity to have that national platform and to, to sort of bring these issues to a very... Um, yeah, a very willing audience, um, being people nationally and internationally who are really interested in this stuff. Um, and so that was great. The Royal Commission didn't really uh, provide the basis, um, um, well, certainly that I feel um, was needed to really push the agenda for increasing and um, better resourcing cultural and management programs, like things like Aboriginal Ranger programs and that, and, and then things like that. Um, but it also, there's questions around whether or not it's the best place for it as well. What we did see in the Royal Commission and through the recommendations was, um, you know, very clear um, attempts from the Commonwealth to push cultural land management programs uh, onto the state. Now, that's a trend that we've been observing for the last, you know, five to seven years. Um, and when we... With that knowledge, well, then we can start to look at some of the state-based processes as well. So following the bushfires in Victoria, there was um, a couple of big, really uh, quite significant reports by the Inspector General of Emergency Management. In New South Wales, there was an independent bushfire inquiry. Both of those have heaps more substantial findings and recommendations. And um, so I think it's really in the state-based inquiries that we find the, the, the most useful information um, both of them, I feel, did a pretty good job at highlighting some of the significant issues, made some pretty clear and strong recommendations. Um, and I think in terms of implementing those recommendations, it's quite uneven, though, because uh, in Victoria we see a lot of action and a lot of processes um, from the government, um, a lot of attempts by the government and government agencies to really do better, do more, engage with communities more on their own terms and to really address the structural barriers that that they have themselves and within themselves. Um, in New South Wales, we see it as a much slower-moving beast. So um, I suppose it's just still sitting and, and watching um, these things unfold and advocating where we can. Yeah, and I guess like seeing the uh, the responsibility kind of bounce between the state and federal level, um, as you mentioned, it is important at the state-based level to be able to do that more targeted inquiry and make recommendations that are more relevant to specific areas. Um, but I guess there's also the potential for uh, this, 
you know, shifting of responsibility to, to I guess, make um, action very difficult and kind of stagnate as well. Um, but your research has identified the exclusion of Indigenous peoples in national disaster resilience policies in Australia. And that article for the conversation I mentioned earlier included your proposal for the development of a national Indigenous disaster resilience framework. So how might such a framework be developed, especially um, in light of these shifting responsibilities? And what is needed to make this happen? Yeah, so this this framework that I've suggested, to me, it's absolutely essential. So we see there's a few national key kind of policy documents um, that operate in Australia. Things like there's a National Disaster Resilience Handbook, there's a National um, Disaster Resilience Framework, um, like the, de- developed by sort of um, the Commonwealth of Australia, uh, sorry, the Council of Australian Government, so it sits over all of them. And when you look at these national... Uh, disaster policy, disaster resilience policies and strategies, um, it's, there's just a, an almost criminal lack of engagement with Indigenous people. Um, you know, as, as, as uh, populations with unique profiles, as unique rights holders, as possessing sort of unique housing and land rights arrangements, um, you know, completely ignoring the role of community-controlled sectors and prescribed corporations, like, just... And, and ignoring Indigenous people's connection with country as well and what that means for them in times of disaster. So you, you see a complete absence, a removal of Indigenous peoples from these really critical key national policy instruments. And so what we see then is when... Um, the consequences of that is that when disasters do unfold, like they are currently in northern New South Wales in particular, you see policy responses that align with these strategies, but that, but that invariably make the disaster worse for Indigenous people. And you can look at things like how they um, design and provide emergency relief funding, for instance. So, you know, the, the, the packages that, they, that government, state and federal announce for emergency payments are centred around kind of like average household sizes. So in Australia, I think the average household size, according to the ABS, is like 2.6 um, 2. adults. So that's like two adults and a couple of children. So that's it's a weird way of thinking about it, sort of like 0.6 of an individual, but certainly in national statistics, that's how they um, design them. And the relief payments are designed according to that. But the but the profile of Indigenous housing is very, very different. It's, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's completely different. It's almost like, I think it's about 3.8 per household in Indigenous, um, the National Indigenous Housing Average. And so you see strategies, an emergency strategy is designed to fit non-Indigenous populations, and they just are completely inadequate with the realities of Indigenous communities. And so this is why we need our own standalone National Indigenous Disaster Resilience Framework that draws out these issues, that can talk back to this big national policy landscape, and that kind of lays a foundation for when government, state and federal, design these relief um, systems, that they're, that they're doing it from an evidence base. They're doing it um, you know, with, a, with the knowledge of what, what, what are the unique realities for Indigenous people that are going to, um, you know... Um, as I said, make worse or actually be able to support them in times of disaster. So, um, and, and without having that focus just on our own communities, I feel like it will just be subsumed and made absent again in these larger policy documents as they, as they will be reformed over the next few years.
Yeah, definitely. And we will link people to that article in the conversation as well, because you also provided some links in there uh, to work that's currently going on, but also to kind of back up some of the important information you've shared with us. Now, just to wrap up, I was wondering if you wanted to, um, you know, give listeners the the opportunity to engage with any Indigenous-led initiatives, um, to learn more and also to take action. And uh, also, where can people find your own research? Yeah, so I th- uh, um, there's a few different organisations that are doing some really good work, and you spoke um, about Tashiko and, and Seedmog earlier. They're a fantastic organisation led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people. You know, really on the on the front lines of advocating for for you know climate change, um, you know, effective climate change policies. So really kind of support those in the cultural land management space. There's um, you know, Five Six Alliance Aboriginal Corporation, which um, you know is kind of the peak body to, to to promote cultural burning throughout Australia. Um, so there's a couple of uh, yeah, just a couple of organisations that, that that people can kind of look up and support. And um, and yeah, my stuff is just on the website, and or, or you can follow me on Twitter if you if you want to, and all that. Um, my research gets shared on there. But really, to me, the biggest thing that people can do, if you really want to get involved, if you really want to support people, write to your own member. You know, the emergency management planning in this country, um, some of the most important and critical emergency management plans are actually at the local level, regional level. So look at the local council, the local government emergency management plan. They're all required to have one. Look them up and and look for any mentions of Indigenous peoples, of Aboriginal peoples, of Aboriginal communities. If they're not, get in contact with your local council and ask them why not and tell them it's not good enough. And, and be, you know, write, write to your local member and ask them about what they're doing to support cultural and management programs, Aboriginal ranger groups and that kind of thing. So just that, gra- that grassroots advocacy means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And we love a concrete action to take. This is very, very clear. Um, Listeners can listen back to this later so that you know what to do. Write to your local member, check whether Aboriginal people have been actually consulted in these plans. Uh, Baimi, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us this morning. It's been really great to have you on. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. So that was Baimi Williamson, a research associate and PhD candidate at the Australian National University, who is speaking with us about the disproportionate vulnerability of Indigenous peoples to climate change and the need for Indigenous-centred disaster management strategies in Australia. I think we're going to go to another track now. So, I mean... If you have not already heard, Barca has put out her amazing, uh, I think it's her first album, Black Matriarchy, and here is the title track. From the dream time, I go back. They committed genocide through my tracks. They raped our mothers, less than my black. They bought the violence when they attacked. I ain't here to start trouble, I'm just here to state facts. You can't paint me how you wanna paint cracks. And I'm tied to my mob, got my mob on my back. <sighs> Waratahs are covered in blood, whitewashing our history to cover it up. It's all in the pudding Cause this nation couldn't give a fuck about us We survive unseated, undivided Our people stay fighting cause the flame is ignited We stay righteous, we cannot be silenced Cause silence is violence, the reason we're divided And they choose not to digest the truth Instead they just go ahead and delude our youth Only love the system cause it best suits you Give a fuck about the law, yeah I'd rather grassroots Black to the bone, black to the busy Mob on my back, yeah they all rock with me Barker in my blood, that river flow through me I'm matriarchal bloodline, 120 Black 
This for the black matriarchs. This for my sisters who lived in the dark. This for my sisters who carry our past on their shoulders. This is for black matriarchs. This is for all of our women. This is for all of our children. Couldn't care less about the monarch. I'ma set fire to the kingdom. I'm coming for them. More hail to black matriarchs. I'm the pain and the proof, the history that lays out the truth. And they couldn't walk a mile in our shoes. Tell us to go bush when they all introduce. Fuck it, we've been here for too long. Matriarchy blood, yeah, been built strong. Song lines deep, yeah, got me singing songs. Cause I can't forget where I came from. Parkinji country, Mungo man. Pass it to my kids, tell them this your land. I came from the dirt, go back in red sand. There's a river, uncle, I'm proud of who I am. Creator, created me tough. And I'm calling out all your bluffs Saying the past is all in the past Well that dark past still lives in my mum I stay radical, I know the truth Couldn't kill my ancestors, I'm the proof I know I still got some screws loose But my third eye's open and I'm looking right through Looking at you, Nunku right here Gonna do what it do, so my little black seeds Ain't gonna prove shit to you Nachi sent me, gone bud, what do? Freaker sent me, hold it down for a few This for the black matriarchs This for my sisters who lived in the dark This for my sisters who carry our past on their shoulders This is for black matriarchs This is for all of our women This is for all of our children Couldn't care less about the monarch I'ma set fire to the kingdom I'm coming for them More hell to black matriarchs You know, I have a culture I am a cultured person Don't try and suppress me And don't call me a problem I have never left my country I am not the problem You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was Black Matriarchy, the title track of Barker's new album. Um, cannot recommend it highly enough. Absolutely incredible and so many bangers and also an encouragement to people to watch the music video for Black Matriarchy, which is phenomenal. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. And you're back on 3CR 855 on your AM dial, or you might be listening via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And we are now joined by Dr. Fiona Allison, who's a senior research fellow at Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research. And Fiona joins us to speak about the Call It Out Racism Register, which was released this week by the National Justice Project and Jambana Institute. And this aims to track instances of racism against First Nations people. Dr. Allison has worked on national and other projects related to improving justice outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, including in the area of race discrimination and racism in the criminal justice system. Dr. Fiona Allison, thank you so much for joining us this morning on 3CR. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah, of course. Um, it's really important to be able to have you on in this week to talk about this. Yeah. And, um, of course, we've got you on to speak about Call It Out, which is that register to report racism and discrimination experienced by First Nations people, which was launched um, and uh, which was chosen to launch on the 21st of March, which is the United Nations International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And um, I was wondering if you could talk about that decision to launch it on that day and how this relates to this year's theme of Voices for Action Against Racism. Yep, sure, Priya. So, um, so that date, the 21st of March, uh, each year marks the day in 1960 that police shot and killed um, South African protesters in Sharpeville. So that was the Sharpeville massacre. Um, and these protesters were demonstrating against apartheid laws. The UN introduced um, a week of remembering starting on that day, um, remembering that event, but also sort of aimed to bring people together in solidarity to support those impacted by racism. So just acknowledging what that day is actually about. So by launching the register, call it out on this same day, so March the 21st, um, we were hoping to draw attention to the massive problem of racism that we have in our country, and that is racism against our Indigenous people, who would have to be the most impacted peoples in terms of racism in Australia, it would be fair to say. Uh, this racism has, you know, a very long history and is still extremely prevalent today. So uh, our sense is that there's really not enough awareness or acknowledgement of this in, in Australia at the moment. And I think also we were keen to place uh, Indigenous experiences of racism in this international context. So we, you know, we're recognising that this is a huge problem internationally for so many people around the world. But the point of this particular register or mechanism is to record Indigenous Australians' voices in particular um, on this issue. So this hasn't been done before. This is the first time that there's been a register purely dedicated to First Nations experiences of racism. Mm. Um, And so in terms of voices of action, uh, we're hoping that the evidence of racism that we're collecting can then be a tool for advocacy and activism to challenge this issue, and I guess particularly for and by Indigenous people. And and I think this, um, you know, we have seen in the past two Indigenous people drawing on the international movement against racism, so um, it's kind of fitting to put it in that context as well now. So we saw, for example, in the 60s, Charlie Perkins uh, drawing on the experiences in the US, with the US civil rights movement and um, leading the freedom ride in the 60s. But again, kind of adapting that to highlight what was going on for Indigenous people in Australia in terms of racism. So yeah, it seemed like a fitting time to launch it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it is really... um really important to make sure that we have these conversations that are focused at the kind of intersection of racism and of Indigenous sovereignty as well, Um, you know, looking at the specific kinds of racism that are connected to, you know, the dispossession of Indigenous land and the way that, uh, you know, that original violence of, uh, you know, colonization continues to perpetrate perpetrate harms and reproduce stereotypes and discourses about Indigenous people that have become, um, you know, so horribly normalized in so-called Australia. Um, So you've already spoken a bit about what the register is and what it hopes to achieve. I'm wondering what kind of experiences you're hoping to record and who can make contributions to this register? Mm -hmm. So at the moment, we've got, um, so there's three different 
I guess, types of reports that can be made. One is uh, Indigenous people reporting their own experiences of racism. The second one is someone reporting on their behalf. So that could be, for example, for a younger person who might encourage a, an older person to report on their behalf. And there's also um, capacity for witnesses of racism against First Nations peoples to report that. So that means non-Indigenous people can report, but they need to be reporting about First Nations experiences of racism. Um, what we're going to do is also, or we're already doing, because we're already getting um, some reports in, quite a few reports in, we're collecting data on who the person is that's experiencing the racism. So we might ask, we're asking about their location, their gender and age if they want to identify that and also some details about the perpetrator. And it's important to say, I guess, that all different types of racism can be recorded. So there's often a focus on interpersonal experiences of racism and race discrimination, including in, in surveys on this issue. And um, we've also found that in talking to Indigenous people about racism. So this is probably because it's still there's still so much blatant and interpersonal racism going on. And it's obviously really important to highlight it. But we would say that's just the tip of the iceberg. And we've also got capacity in the... Um, register for people to report institutional racism, which is also a really, really major issue. So the register will guide people to answer specific questions about things like being unable to get a job or a rental or being vilified, being followed in shops by security guards, that sorts of, those sorts of issues that we know are really prevalent, but we also want to record um, more systemic issues if, if people are able to, to put that into the register. And there are, speaking of the differences, you just raised that, there are also some questions in there or the option to identify a breach of Indigenous cultural rights, which is obviously something that's going to be particular to Indigenous people. Um, so discrimination is obviously not just about being treated differently, it can also be about being treated the same as others. So, um, you know, failure to recognise the different situation for Indigenous people. Um, there's some questions in there about the impacts of the event or issue being reported. And we've also got a question in there asking people how they have responded to this issue or event. Um, I know that the UN this year is also focusing on recognising those that call out racism and acknowledging the challenges of doing so. So um, Indigenous people face massive challenges in, in calling out these issues and we're hoping the register can overcome some of those barriers. So that could be, for example, fear of retribution. Um, so that certainly occurs when people want to uh, raise complaints about racist policing practices, but it can occur in other contexts as well. Um, and this could be quite a well-founded fear. I guess we saw how Adam was treated by the public when he called out racism. Um, it can get pretty nasty. The platform is anonymous, so the published data will be de-identified, but it still allows for a space for accounts of racism to be seen and heard. And I guess the other thing I'd say is that um, we're not setting this up as an alternative to uh, initiating a legal complaint. We think it's really important that Indigenous people exercise their legal rights if they choose to do so. But again, there's a lot of barriers to using the legal system to initiate a complaint and to see it through, including because people don't know that they can or they might be uncomfortable with the process or they find it difficult to submit a written complaint. So we're also kind of thinking through ways that this platform might address that. It might kind of uh, set some system up whereby if people choose to, their, their report of racism can initiate a formal complaint um, and they could be linked in with some advocacy to support that. Um, the other thing is those, those laws are limited, so not every experience of racism um, can actually 
constitute a formal complaint. So this is another way for people to name or call, call out racism that they're experiencing. Yeah, I mean, I think it is, it's so important to sort of have that breadth um, that this register appears to, to, to provide, because, you know, I think thinking about the differences that you spoke about in terms of interpersonal versus institutional mm-hmm. racism, and just, you know, the horrific uh, information we've had come out lately about the extent of um you know, healthcare, like racism mm. uh, in the healthcare yep. system with rheumatic heart disease most recently, mm-hmm. um, but also, you know, looking at issues around um, police and policing and exactly. um, questions, you know, I think of the family of Auntie Tanya Day, um, you know, trying to raise that question of systemic racism uh, in Victoria police um, and, yeah. you know, looking at um, looking at institutional cultures that might I guess, militate against uh, addressing these kinds of questions internally. I think it is so important then to have this external register for people to be able to keep a record of um, of these instances. And I really like the, um, the fact that you're looking towards opportunities uh, for complaints to be registered and support to be provided formally, yeah. Um, potentially. Yeah, I think that's right. But yeah, look, the institutional issues are just are just massive. And, and Indigenous people will call out racism in, say, in relation to, say, death in custody, but it just doesn't get, yeah, it doesn't get acknowledged um, within legal institutions and otherwise if that's what it is. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out in the register anyway in that space. Yeah. I, I guess it's that kind of question of um, really legitimizing and validating the sort of common knowledge of racism against yeah. Indigenous people, which you know, it's it's an open secret in this country that there is a massive problem of racism, both in general, but specifically, you know, the 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 whole founding of the country being based on racism against First Nations people. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah recording that and and you know, mounting advocacy on the back of it is is really important. Yeah. Now, um, Speaking of that racism issue, uh, listeners might be familiar with the Howard government's decision to water down explicit discussions about racism on the 21st of March and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, turning it into Harmony Day in Australia. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the relationship between how we talk or don't talk about racism mm-hmm. and then how we actually take action to eliminate it or be actively anti-racist within, I guess, a systemic culture that um, prefers to look the other way. Yeah, sure. So I think that was a probably a really neat attempt at trying to remove um, what is the ugliness of racism. Um, so I guess when you talk about an aspirational land of harmony, um, also what you're really doing is taking out of the equation that there is a perpetrator of racism, and that is you know potentially broader society or government or whoever it is. Um, so it's really just an example of further denial of the issue. And also, I guess I'd ask, I'd question whether that is what all Indigenous people want. Is it harmony? Um, you know, there's probably more discussion and louder discussion about wanting truth and justice in the context of racism than harmony. So, yeah, probably a bit of a, a whitewash. And I think if we can fully understand Indigenous experiences of racism, then we're going to be better equipped to respond to it. It's really, really important. It's a really good question to ask. So that may include taking responsibility uh, for the problem in ways that include, you know, ensuring there's better accountability of government systems to avoid racism or ensuring the broader public understands their responsibilities, for example, under race discrimination laws. I think we've all got a part to play in addressing this issue. But I guess we're especially hoping that this data will 
equip Indigenous people who are already leading or are keen to lead change in this area with resources and evidence to do so. I mean, you know, it's going to yield quantitative data, so it's going to yield statistics, and that's going to have its limitations in some sense, but I think they can also be really powerful as well. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, it seems it seems so, I guess, in a sense, frustrating that there needs to be such a robust substantiation of, um, you know, of these claims of racism, which I guess we know anecdotally to be real and severe and to cause, you know, serious impacts on people's lives and their quality of life. Um, but it is uh, so important to, you know, in, in an environment where evidence has to be provided to this degree to have a register like this. So, um, Fiona, just to wrap up, where can people find out more about the register and make a contribution to it? Okay, so it's if you go online to callitout.com.au, um, it's fairly easy to find and you just walk yourself through the questions. Um, there's also a map in there that we've put up um, where you can kind of see where the complaints are already coming through. And if people don't want to fill it in online, there is a resources tab. Um, if you go into that, there's actually um, the form can be printed or filled out. Um, on paper and then emailed in to us. And there is some assistance in filling it out. There's a number to call if people need some help um, to go through the, the register questions. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that and um, appreciate the okay. work and look forward to seeing how it develops. Thank you, Priya. Thanks for having us on. No worries. So that was Dr. Fiona Allison, who is a senior research fellow at Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research, joining us to speak about the Call It Out Racism Register, which was released this week by the National Justice Project and Jambana Institute. And this register aims to track instances of racism, both interpersonal and institutional, and I guess also systemic, against First Nations people. And Fiona has worked on national and other projects related to improving justice outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, including in the area of race discrimination and racism in the criminal justice system. And again, you can find out more and make a report at callitout.com.au. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming on 3CR Community Radio featuring interviews on colonization in so-called Australia. Stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and streaming at 3cr.org.au or via the community radio app. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. 
A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we're very fortunate to be joined by Professor Gary Foley, who's speaking with us about the national cinema release of the fully restored documentary Ningla Ana, the inside story of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, which celebrated its 50th year of continued occupation and resistance this year. Good morning, Gary. How's it going? Good morning. Good. Um, maybe we'll just jump straight into it. So... This year is the 50th anniversary, obviously, of the establishment of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. Um, and I was hoping that you could start off by giving us a bit of an insight into what it was like to be there in 1972 at the height of the land rights movement. Um, those were exciting times. I mean, you know, it was coming off the back of extensive decolonisation of many nations in Africa, Asia and the Pacific. Um, there was a massive um, campaign against the Vietnam War. It was the beginnings of the women's and gay movements, or the, the sort of resurgence of those. Um, and uh, Aboriginal land rights was um, a major political issue. And, um, you know, so they were dynamic and exciting times, both within Australia and internationally. Mm. Uh, so it was a great time to be alive. Yeah. And, I mean, it was, you know, so dynamic seeing, um, you know, from from the from the Redfern Black Power movement, seeing the medical services come up, the legal services, and this um, this huge amount of momentum, then leading into, you know, the, the massive mobilization in 88. Um, I'm wondering... How have you seen the political landscape change in this country since 1972 when it comes to Aboriginal land rights and sovereignty? And why is political education so important? Well, I mean, it's important. Uh, I mean, if, if Australians are going to participate in some shonky referendum in the near future, then it would seem important that they have some sense of what the history has been the long trail of broken promises by governments, the destruction of the land rights movement by the Hawke government, um, the corruption that uh, pervades Aboriginal affairs today, all of these sort of things, um, uh, you know, can be understood if, if you have a basic understanding of history. I teach that history in three weeks to, you know, 60 students at a time. Mm. And they can understand when I've finished with them, but the majority of Australians have got no inkling of the history, the long history of uh, the Aboriginal resistance, beginning virtually from the day Captain Cook set foot on this shore and still alive and living to this day in the form of the young activists from war. Mm. 
Yeah, and I think um, I was thinking about your your speech at the Abolish the Monarchy rally, um, where I think you know you, you spoke to to the fact that there has been, um, you know, the, the the state continues to to grind away at trying to, you know, stamp out resistance and um, you know subvert these processes, but there is this really exciting. Um, new generation of young activists who are really taking the movement forward. So um, I was wondering if, if you could and speak to that no, as well. It's no accident that many of this new generation are in fact literally the grandchildren of some of the activists from the late 60s and early 70s, you know. Um, that's one of the things I find so ad- admirable about them. And, and they're pulling bigger crowds on Invasion Day than we managed to pull at the heyday of the Black Power Movement. So they're doing pretty good um, Mm -hmm. as far as I can see. Yeah, and I mean, they're the ones that have had this lifetime of political education steeped in the movement and growing up in it. Um, Indeed, and and among those who are the new generation is uh, Senator Lydia Thorpe, who's getting a bit of a kicking in the age at the moment. Uh, unwarrantedly, and, uh, you know, there seems to be a concerted effort to uh, challenge the credibility of Lydia Thorpe. And yet Lydia Thorpe, in my mind, um, you know, I've known her since before she was born. Um, And she, I know her background. I know that she comes from a strong uh, political lineage of matriarchs, brilliant matriarchs. Um, and she's got more political knowledge in her little finger than half of them other black uh, uh, parliamentarians in Canberra got, you know, despite some of them having bigger names, you know, big name, no blankets. Yeah, I mean, she is definitely bringing, um, you know, bringing a real activist commitment into into Parliament, and I think that's not comfortable for, for some of the status well, quo. I mean, I mean, you know, she she's in there disrupting and challenging the status quo. Mm. You know, and if you're going to go into the go into parliament, then then that's the thing to do. I mm. mean, otherwise you just become, uh, you know, one of you know one of the other mediocrities that infest the place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us, um, in view of sort of wrapping up, uh, what it means to you that the documentary has been restored and what you hope people get out of being able to watch the documentary when it when it's screening. Well, you know, I took my hat to Hayden Keenan, who mounted a uh, GoFundMe campaign and raised enough money to have the film remastered. And, and it's, uh, I've said in other places, it's magical what they can do these days because... This new digitally remastered version is actually better visual quality than the original 16mm film that I saw 50 years ago. Mm. And I mean, you know, it's a, and it's appropriate that these screenings are happening because this is also the 50th anniversary of that film, and and that's a really significant historical document. You know, it's the only uh, stuff that was shot from within and around the Black Power Movement in Redfern. And the only reason that it exists is because of the courage of two Italian filmmakers, Alessandro and Fabio Cavadini, 
who, you know, had the respect to walk into Redfern when not a lot of white Australian filmmakers had come near the place. Mm. And they asked us for permission to film in our midst. And because they'd paid us that simple respect, we said yes. And the result is the film that's on at the Nova. Yeah, I hear it's already sold out. There's another screening with a panel with me and Rachel Mazza, whose father features in the film, and Mm. I think she might have been in there as a little child. Yeah, incredible. Um, but thank you so much for making the time to, to chat with us about it this morning. And I also encourage people to, to listen back to the chat that Gary had with Robbie Thorpe yesterday. So, Gary, thank you so much for, for joining us this morning. No worries. Always happy to talk to 3CR. Always a pleasure to have you on. And that was Professor Gary Foley, who joined us to speak about the national cinema release of the fully restored documentary Ningla Anna. Stay locked to 3CR. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and this is Indigenous Land by Dreaming Now and River Boy. Everywhere we walk upon in this world, one Indigenous group or another has once lived there before for thousands and thousands of years. One of the most intricate and respectful ways to inhabit that place. We need to remember that. You're on Indigenous land, original clans. Since beginning of man, countless years out on this land Living so grand, alarm to commence Intrinsic alarm, never disband 60,000 plus, following law before this sight of hand Through the seasons and sacred plants Injured storms for many last spans From the desert down to the clay pan Tropics and mountaintops, from to no chance Sanctified beaches, no equivalent Swept with the tide, deeply advanced Warriors post, so poised in a stance Out of wisdom, truth never by chance Sorcerers, elixirs, and transcendent dance Standing in love across every expanse Message to blind, it's in the hands Reflects from beauty from all that expands Infused with the magic, majestic and grand Murder your mind, thought of cool land No more body, call it the band Koko, Yalanji, Bangarang Young, you, Pai, Mirana, Burngam Yota, Yota, Unwarang where is it you stand a man? Whose land you standing on? Know the history, know the facts. This indigenous land that you are on. Indigenous land is where you stand. Indigenous land is where you be. Indigenous land, it always was. Indigenous land, always will be. Indigenous land is where you stand. Indigenous land is where you be. Indigenous land, it always was. Indigenous land, always will be. Lest we forget the frontier wars and the genocide blueprint of does live on. Deaths in custody, you see, not more prolific than ever forced by big ghosts. Still, they gallivant and they robust. Children again and again, still on in the blink of an eye. They go with us and then they are gone. We still amid all these storms, 230 years on. Village in scorn, culture ignored. Fictions in city, it's a dawn. All of our sacredness shaken and sworn. All the while on indigenous land, we are living out that lies upon. Does your mind realize the song? As it posts in subliminal dawns. From ancestors on the rise on. To do not belong, a perpetual cycle of wrongs. This thing glorious, we will time bomb. But yeah, all of our kingdoms still here, still live on. We still countless original, limitless indigenous nations. To no broken chain of law, ancestral law. They given us more, endlessly, they given us more. From the distance to the shore, they delivering law. They sing it law for forevermore. Indigenous land. Is where you stand. Indigenous land is where you be. 
Indigenous lands, it don't waste what's Indigenous lands, oh brace for beat Indigenous lands, is where you stand Indigenous lands, is where you beat Indigenous lands, it don't waste what's Indigenous lands, oh brace for beat Life, cause I'm doing all this promo. You think you know my lifestyle? Don't judge by the photo. I'ma do me while the rest compete. My only defeats when it's me versus me. Everybody say what they want about me, but everybody dance when they hear Tiki now. You come Vanessa, Vanessa. Fuck out the hill, you too extra. If you want it, me better step up. Or go try Becky or Vanessa. You know that before you came around, I got a cord hard up in Love, you turn a bad bitch to a bandit I If I broke down my business I'ma shine like a rattle Fall like a for the night I If I broke down my business I'ma shine like a rattle Fall like a for the night if you be the reason why your baba wanna jealous me If you want to take I'm serious, I do to speak No fit to resonate, I'm on a different frequency uh-huh. I don't think it's necessary I'll be done with somebody that could do like me When I be like Musala coming off the right wing I got to your defender, you no need to tell me I'm a horse, finesse uh, You know, send me, I'm a snap Now you can let I go carry go if me, I got money past you. If you're not careful, finesse. You know, send me a mustache. Now, can I go carry go? If me, I got money past you. If you're not careful, If I broke down my business, I'm a shy like a rattle. All I care for the night. I'll finish. If I broke down my business, I'm a shy like a rattle. All I care for the night. Baby, I'm a hustler No, I'm a rich to go like Costa Don't waste my time, it'll cost ya I'm a team so solid, I'm a bust up You know the times it was colder Had different avenues for the doja In my circle, no cobra So we catch a vibe, not sober When we gon' finesse, yeah Do it right, so I worry less I'm a smooth one in Sydney West I got 20 stars, yeah, they can't attest Oh, recipes, I told you Feeling good, rest in peace to the old you You got a bag, then forgot who showed you Now you tryna come back, go for it I just wanna finesse If I broke down my business I'ma shine how you go back All I can for you now If I broke down my business I'ma shine how you go back All I can for you now If I broke down my business, I'ma shine like a rattle. All I care for the night, I'ma shine like a rattle. All I care for the night, I'ma shine like a rattle. Baby, my girl, I owe. And my friend, Johnny, so. And my friend, Johnny, so. 
And we're back on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard a couple of our favorites back to back. First up was Indigenous Land by Dreaming Now and Riverboy. And after that, you heard Finesse by Fields featuring Benson, Pania and Kedis. And now we will go to an interview with Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter, who is a proud Wurundjeri, Nuri, alum Wurrung woman, and a Deputy Chair and Commissioner with the Europe Justice Commission. Sue Ann is also a Child and Family Services Practitioner and will be joining us today to speak on the Europe Justice Commission's upcoming investigation into the impact of child protection and criminal justice system of First Peoples in Victoria. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Commissioner Sue Ann. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, anytime. Um, I think, can we, I know we have a lot to cover, but I know we'll start off with what you've said in the media release, um, that we know the harm that has been inflicted on the stolen generation continues to traumatise our people, yet record numbers of First Nations children are being taken from their families at a rate 20 times greater than non-Aboriginal kids, and we're seeing a new stolen generation happening before our eyes. Could we start off with why First Nations children are so overrepresented in the child protection system? Yeah, I think the why is is the really big part of it. So in these hearings, we were looking at why um, and better understanding through these hearings about why this is happening. So why are we overrepresented? Why are the rates not reducing but going up? These are the questions that we want to know as well. So that's part of, um, of holding these hearings. But it is alarming that it's 20 times greater. And I've worked in this, this field for, for such a long time and it's getting worse, not better. So we need to remember that this, this commission is around uh, systemic injustices of for, for first people within Victoria. And that why question is so important as we go into these hearings. Absolutely. And I know that the... Uruk Justice Commission is currently, yeah, looking into injustices against first mm. people's children and their families in Victoria and the child protection system. Could you tell us more about the actual commission process and what it really aims to achieve? So the commission is, Uruk means truth in Wamba Wamba language. It's the first royal commission into truth-telling, truth and justice within Australia and Victorian, led by Victorian first people. Um and so we're looking at these systemic injustices from colonisation right through to um, to current, so historic as well as contemporary. Uh, with particularly uh, child protection and criminal justice, there are first two themes, for a better word. Um, you know, we need to look at the injustices of both because it's a bit of a pipeline, right? So the children that go in child protection end up in the criminal justice system end up in youth detention, end up in prison. The systems are failing. Um, the systems are failing our people, and we need to know why. So we'll have three blocks of hearings. The first uh, of the three is focused on evidence from leaders of our Aboriginal organisations and service providers, um, as well as you know, sort of leading experts in their area. Then we've got a block in February, and that's the opportunity for the voices, a community voice of first peoples, that have been touched by this system. So there'll be, there'll be hearings around that in um, in February. And then in March is the final block, and, and that will see government and institutions give evidence. That's where we'll be asking a lot of the why. Yeah. We need these hearings to gather the evidence to be able to have really strong recommendations 
to be able to implement at the end of this. Yeah, absolutely. I think getting to, you know, as you've mentioned, getting to the why is so hugely important in this case. And Mm. I think also, as you've mentioned, the system has failed. I think failure is also such an understatement, these children and families. Um, Do you think that the system has failed or is it set up to do exactly what it was really designed to? And as you've mentioned, there's so much like systemic crossover between like welfare, youth, criminal justice, quote unquote, systems. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's looking at the... We've got to be really clear that we're not looking at individual stories, but those individual stories make up the collective systemic injustices that have happened. Mm-hmm. So we need to look at those for evidence, and that'll guide us of where to go and have a look at. We know these are these aren't new issues. There's a lot of evidence around a lot of issues out there, and, and we notice them. Is I mean, we've, we've seen it, and, and I think every week there's another story in the paper around an injustice. It's not new. But it's just increasing, not decreasing, and this is this is the issue. You know, that some of these tragedies could have been prevented, or these outcomes. And there's multitude of reports and inquiries that say the same thing over the last decade. And bringing government to the stand to ask why, why, why haven't you changed these? Given there's so many reports, you know, we're, it's not lost on us. This is nothing new, and that we're still asking the same questions. The state needs to understand the story of colonisation of the land and the devastating and lasting impact of colonisation. And if we can join those dots, we have a better understanding that it's not just now. Colonisation didn't just happen back then, it's a continuation. And so to look at how the systems have failed us from the start right through to now is really important. But it's also important that people understand and are able to join the dots of what happened during colonisation and how that is still happening and impacting on Aboriginal people today. Yeah, knowing the ongoing impact is hugely important. And I think yeah. also, um, I know that, you know, you are also a, have worked as a child and family services practitioner. Yeah. Um, and you could probably see every day how challenging it is for First Nations children and parents to actually navigate the child protection system. Would yeah. you mind speaking to maybe what you've what you've seen or the general themes? Yeah, it's um, you know I've done that for twenty years, so I bring with me a lot of stories from a lot of kids, and and you know I bring them into this commission with me in my heart to to get to this. You know, if you're if you're struggling to even keep housing or to get a job or to get your children to school, like. You, and then you're trying to navigate a system that just wants more and more from you. Look, I know I'm, I'm a single mum and as a single parent, I struggle at times, you know, to make appointments or to, to go to things. And the system puts extra pressure. And I think we need to look at the system as a whole. Um, there's been instances where they say things, you can have your children back if you get housing. There's a housing crisis. How are they even going to get housing? Or, you know, you you, you're struggling um, to get them to school. They may not even have a car. Um, or there's stuff going on that, you know, there's family violence. Or, you know, there's other things than just the child protection system that go on in people's lives. Unless we nurture people through probably what would be one of the most traumatic things in your life, having your child, then we nurture people. And at the start, we have a plan to get these children back, not just keep them in the system. We can we can do so much more than just remove children. Um, it, it is heartbreaking, and and 
it is a bit soul-destroying at times, but, you know, there's glimmers of hope in there, and that's from our mob that fight every day to get their children returned. And, you know, I don't take... I take those lessons that I've learned off my people within those systems. I don't take them lightly, and I bring them with me into the commission to see, yeah, see some hope. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hope is important. And I think speaking on hope, how do you, I mean, how can we actually improve the system? What's actually getting in the way of doing that, do you believe? Yeah, so well, this goes to the heart of what we do or what we intend to do at Uruk. So our recommendations will address those systemic injustices. Um, the hope is that we uh, we aren't just a normal Royal Commission. We get to do things sort of a bit more our way. Um, that we do have coercive powers to bring people to the stand and, and answer the questions. But we also uh, treat it running at the same time. So our recommendations don't just aren't going to be something that just sits on a shelf. There's something that we hand not only to the government but First People's Assembly, which makes us as Aboriginal people accountable as well. And then we've got a driver to push these changes through. That's the that's the hope in, in you know, it's not just another Royal Commission. Can I also say we aren't just looking at the the stories of doom and gloom of our people, but we also want to tell our truth about our stories of resilience, our stories of survival. Um, and how we've endured inequality, loss, sacrifice, injustices, and we're still here. And so we want to uh, not just... We want to celebrate that we're still here, even though we're still fighting injustices. Um, and what we want from our people is to come forward and be able to give submissions through through our website or we can support them, however that looks. So the process isn't just constant hearings. There will be private hearings. There will be roundtables. We will be going out from country to do them. They won't all be televised and they won't all be in an office or in uh, our hearing room. Um, the way we can improve it is make sure that we've got strong enough um, evidence and that a lot of people have come forward and shed light on their experiences um, because that's the way we, we can investigate properly with enough stories to be able to to join the dot to the systemic injustice that we know is happening um, happening constantly. But these hearings that are coming up um, that start on Monday, they're live streamed. And I really, really encourage you know, all Victorians to go on the Yuruk website. I'm just going to plug it here a bit. So it's Yuruk, uh, which is y-o-o-o-k.org.au. All our documents were up there. All our submission forms were up there. Things we've already done. I do encourage people to look at our interim report and go through. We've got links to elders telling their stories. So make sure you're okay to, to listen to those. We're going to hear in the next few weeks stories of, of heartbreak, of, you know, but they're not new. You just need to remember this isn't new. And I sometimes question myself of why we're still asking these questions and why do we have the government's inability to act? Um, when these have been brought up so many times. Yeah, they sound like they're going to be really powerful and dynamic and important. But yeah, as you said, it's really important that all Victorians, Australians show up um, and really listen to what's being said because it is devastating that it we're still hearing the same thing over and over again. But yeah. there is hope in the 
in the commission. And um, thank you so much for joining us here today, Commissioner Suan. I hope you have um, a lovely day, and we'll definitely put all the links uh, to uh, everything in the show notes. Annette, thank you so much for your time. So we've just heard from Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter, who is a proud Wurundjeri, Nure, Alumurung woman and Deputy Chair and Commissioner with the Uruk Justice Commission. And she joined us today to speak on the Uruk Justice Commission's upcoming investigation into the impact of child protection and criminal justice system on First Peoples in Victoria. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Now we're going to go to a song. Uh, This one has a small language warning, but I think it's a very important track to play at this time. This is Black Child by Birds and Moju. Papa always said, keep your mind on your money and mind your business because a white man coming. Hunting for the black man, another brother down Watch out for the trap, son, no one hears a sound Sirens all around me, my face to the ground Bounty on my head, will I make another round? Life is but a luxury in this lucky country If you ain't got money, ain't no one above thee Trust me, shit, I'm lucky that my mama loved me She showed me beauty in a world that's ugly Child, things are gonna get easier. Oh, my time, fly. Try to make it in this world known as a black child. Oh, my, no lie. No matter what you do, you'll be known as a black child. Oh, my time, fly. Try to make it in this world known as a black child. Oh, Mama always said, don't be scared, be prepared Best to know yourself, cause this world ain't fair Reason why we left there, same thing you see here Always stand tall, never let them see fair Nothing really changed, man, just a different town You're still a black kid when it don't go down Seen a buddy telling me it's better than the world So my nana's dead buddy and it all came up How could I not love that I never got to touch? How could she show love? She was forced to give up her black child
Black Child. Black Child by Birds and Moju. It's almost summer, and I can't wait for the Sporting Record Summer Series. We're able to stretch our legs with four one-hour episodes starting on Thursday the 22nd of December at the normal time of 4pm. We have some very interesting guests lined up for you, so don't miss it. Every Thursday at 4pm here on 855 3CR. That's all we've got time for on today's Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming on 3CR Community Radio. Today's summer special featured a selection of interviews across 2022 looking at the issue of colonisation in so-called Australia. Stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and stream at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.